Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Squash courts are carefully designed. The walls need to be flat and even. The floor should be of a solid, durable wood that has enough grip to stop players slipping. And the walls need to be high. It's this last detail that, in late 1942, meant a squash court in Chicago became the improbable birthplace of the atomic age. Enrico Fermi needed a last-minute site to test his nuclear reactor after workers at the original location went on strike. The Chicago Pile 1 reactor, so-called because it was essentially heaped graphite and uranium, was six metres tall. An abandoned squash court underneath the bleachers of the Stag Field Stadium became a makeshift lab. On December 2nd, Fermi and his team looked on from the court's viewing balcony as the control rods were removed and the world's first nuclear reactor went into operation. Just a few years later, this technology was used to kill over 200,000 people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now America is wondering whether it needs more nuclear energy to help save lives in the fight against climate change. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, should America reconsider nuclear power? Nuclear is responsible for nearly 20% of America's power generation and about half of its clean energy. It's greener than fossil fuels and more reliable than renewables. Yet safety fears remain and plants are being closed down. What role will nuclear play as the US strives to reach its net zero emissions target? With me as ever to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief and energy expert, and John Fassman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, what's going on in New York? Well, earlier in the week, we were on a phone call and I was acting a bit smug, saying that New Yorkers were just so compliant with COVID rules that our case numbers weren't going to be as bad as yours in London, probably the only time an American has claimed to follow rules more closely than a Brit. But I uh, have seen COVID testing lines snake around the block. The new reported case number is up more than double in the past two weeks. So it feels like New York is really about to be on the cusp of a big new wave. It certainly looks that way. I'm clinging on to the hope that Omicron will be less 
dangerous, will put fewer people in hospital. That seems to be the case so far in the UK. So I'm crossing my fingers that this variant is more transmissible, but but less dangerous, certainly for those who've had their vaccines already. John F., how are you doing? I am fine. I'm planning to spend most of January in London and still have not canceled those plans. And I'm holding on to hope that I won't have to cancel them, but I'm watching them very nervously. I'm like the, uh, sorry, <laughs> describing an emoji on an audio podcast is unbelievably inefficient, but I, I'm like the little emoji head with the clenched teeth and big eyes um, every time I open the newspaper. And John, did that emoji also describe your mental state while reading Mark Meadows' text messages, which have been all, all over the press this week? That was more facepalm. That was just, it, it, there's a, there was a coup plan put to paper, which as a matter of planning was just inane. Um, they're pretty remarkable, aren't they? Yes. Well, let's park those thoughts for now, because I think we're going to be talking about the Republican Party plenty in the new year as we come up to the anniversary of the January 6th riot, putsch, whatever you want to call it, at the Capitol. And this week, we're going to be talking about nuclear energy, a technology that I think we at The Economist are pretty supportive of and think that more Americans should get behind. But Charlotte, before we get into this, could you give us a layman's explanation of how nuclear energy works? Sure. So the Department of Energy has lots of great resources that really um, simplify complex processes in the generation of energy. So anyone who wants to learn more can go there. But in succinct words, the nuclear power plants essentially heat water to produce steam. So that's a very common way of producing electricity generally is that you heat up water and then that steam spins big turbines that then creates electricity. And the way that nuclear power plants do that is they use the heat that's produced during nuclear fission to heat water. And as a reminder to those who may have forgotten, nuclear fission itself is when atoms are split and then they form smaller atoms, and that that process releases energy. So that's the simplified explanation from the Department of Energy. Okay, thank you for that public service announcement. There are currently 55 commercially operating nuclear power plants in America. Erin Braun is The Economist's Mountain West correspondent, and she's been to the site of a proposed new one in Wyoming to see how a coal mining town is embracing green energy. Um, Are we sitting in okay p- positions for you? It would, I would be a little more Crystal Bowen works as a clerk at the coal power plant in Kemmerer. She's a little bit soft-spoken and reserved, but she opened up to me when she started telling me about how the coal industry is really in the town's DNA. Coal and coal mining has been the foundation of Kemmerer's existence, to be quite honest with you. Um, my family, I am the fifth generation to live here and work here. My father retired from the coal mine after 40 years of employment. It it means a lot to our community. We're very proud um, of the service and the ability that we've been able to provide for the country. Kemmerer is remote. It's kind of close to Wyoming's border with Utah and Idaho, but it feels like this island of civilization in the middle of an extremely rugged landscape. Deer kind of wander through town, and steam from the coal plant rises above the plains. In 2019, Pacificor, the local power company, announced that 
the plant would be shut down. And a lot of folks in Kemmerer told me that the news came as a real shock, even though coal plants are being retired around the country. It was devastating. Most of us, like most places, we planned on working there until retirement. Um, and it was scary for a lot of us to think of having to load up our families and, and uh, pick up roots and, and travel somewhere else, find new work. Ghost towns litter the West. I drive past them all the time when I'm reporting. Crystal and her fellow residents were worried that Kemmerer would follow in the footsteps of these other small mining towns that have dried up all around the region. But this fall, Crystal and the town got some good news. Terra Power, a nuclear innovation company that was founded by Bill Gates, had picked Kemmerer over three other towns in Wyoming to build a new nuclear plant. The project is meant to demonstrate that a new kind of nuclear reactor, which they call natrium, can be built quickly and cheaply and safely relative to America's existing plants. And on the day of that announcement, I drove up to Cheyenne, which is Wyoming's capital, to chat with Chris Levesque, TerraPower's CEO. Why does Wyoming make sense? You know, there's a real need for this kind of electricity here. And then there's all of these fossil plant retirements, right? Nationwide, there's 300 gigawatts of planned um, coal retirements between now and 2035. The workers that I talked with admitted that they would probably need new training and certification to work at the nuclear plant, but they seemed really confident that there would be a lot of overlap between what they do at the coal plant and how the new nuclear plant would run. There's a strong overlap. I mean, they're both making the same electrons, right? They both have a steam plant where you're going to boil water, run it through a turbine to generate electricity. So all of that is, is very common. And then instead of a coal-fired boiler, we have a nuclear fission reactor as a heat source. So, you know, we think there's a workforce there, you know, both the operations and the maintenance crew that can totally be redeployed. Is is going to require training? Yes. And uh, certification by the NRC? Uh, you know, ab- absolutely. But it it's doable. Residents like Crystal and other folks that I talked to see the plant as a way to save their town. I think that it just really gave people a, a a sense of optimism. They're like, okay, there is a chance things are going to change and turn around, and you know maybe we'll learn new a new technology. We'll be able to be a part of this new upcoming you know technology, and our kids maybe will have an opportunity to get in on the ground floor and learn about it and and be a part of it. If the Natrium project in Kemmerer is a success, it could be the start of a trend. Here's Chris from TerraPower again. We're not building just one. We're demonstrating the first one. And because of the needs on the grid, we think there's going to be demand for many more in, in Wyoming, in the mountain region, you know, across the U.S. and even internationally. The biggest thing that I took away from my time in Kemmerer is that residents view the nuclear plant as a way to keep their town humming. They totally understand that the transition to clean energy is coming and they don't want to be a casualty of it. That's why I encountered so much optimism and why you won't hear a bad word about nuclear power in coal country.
Charlotte Camera is a pretty interesting place. It was named after a Pennsylvania coal magnate with the same surname, and the town was called after the Camera Coal Company. Uh, so, you know, it really is a company town. What chances of it being renamed Gates after Bill Gates's philanthropy in this area? And more substantively, why are we talking about the promise of nuclear power right now? I mean, this is a technology that's been around for a, a really long time, right? Right. So what's new is that for the first time, there are goals that America has set out to slash greenhouse gas emissions. So Biden wants to reduce emissions by half by 2030 compared to their levels in 2005. And reducing emissions from electricity is really key to that. So he wants zero emissions electricity by 2035. But that's not a goal that's shared by all American people. And it requires a dramatic transformation of the energy system as it exists today. And that's hard because it's technically complex. It cannot fail. We need heat. We need electricity. Any disruption is hugely damaging. And there are also entrenched economic interests in the form of jobs and companies in a place like Kemmerer. And Wyoming, you know, it's not just Kemmerer that's coal country. It gets almost 90% of its power from fossil fuels. It has big coal industry as well as big natural gas. And so this project shows in many ways what Biden is trying to do, which is to say, Yes, um, the old industry may decline, coal in this case, but something new and innovative will take its place. So the TerraPower, it, it has funding from Gates, but it also has um, a $2 billion grant from the infrastructure bill that Biden passed. And so it's trying to be an example of the new American energy. You know, China and Russia have invested heavily in nuclear power. Um, those two countries have built more than two-thirds of the new reactor since 2010. So this is America trying to catch up. But the truth is that it's actually pretty hard to do so. And the question is, can what's being done in Kemmerer be done at scale? Is it going to be done elsewhere? Is there support for it? And that question of whether new technologies can be done at scale and whether there's both financial and public support for it is important for this whole clean energy transition. And each new type of clean energy has a complex set of issues that it needs to grapple with. And nuclear really provides a window both into the promise of the, that transition, but also some of the challenges that are going to come up. Charlotte, one thing that struck me about the discussion was the enthusiasm of people in Kemmerer, even those, perhaps especially those, who have a long family history of involvement in the coal industry. I mean, to hear politicians like Joe Manchin and Donald Trump say it, there's people in coal country want to mine coal. They don't want to transition to green sources of power, to new sources of power. You reported on energy for years. Do you think that there is that level of support for new technology if it comes and is proven viable around the country? Or do you think there's something unusual about Cameron, Wyoming, that you may not find in, say, Appalachia? Well, it makes sense in many ways that the residents of Kemmerer are excited about this, but there were also three other towns that were considered as sites for this new nuclear plant that weren't awarded it. So they may be less enthusiastic. And so the question is, you know, who gets lifted up by this shift? And there will be some people who are left behind. And the question is how you help those people. And when I was doing reporting on this earlier in the year, 
I spoke with Gina McCarthy, who's the head of Biden's domestic climate policy, and she was very clear about how important the discussion of jobs is to the broader Biden energy agenda. And so the Biden administration has its work cut out because for every town that gets a new clean power plant in the short term, there may be another town that suffers from the transition away from coal. I think net, when you look at the analysis that that different groups have done, including really reputable groups at Princeton and elsewhere, net, the job gain is positive. Um, This is not only essential for environmental reasons, but also is a net gain for jobs. But there are certain constituencies that are are going to be upset by this. And you see that in the politics of this. I'll note that Joe Manchin from West Virginia, of course, is the Democratic chair of the Senate Energy Committee. And John Barrasso from Wyoming is his Republican co-chair. Charlotte, let me ask a very basic question. What are the advantages of nuclear power and why is it not more popular in the United States? Well, the huge advantage of nuclear power is one, it's a technology that exists that provides clean energy, zero emissions energy. Building the plant itself, of course, requires cement, and that is a process that requires some carbon. But once it's up and running, when it's producing electricity, it is zero emissions. And it can produce electricity regardless of the weather. So uh, whether it's cold, there's a lack of wind, it's cloudy, whatever, it's producing zero carbon electricity unlike wind and solar farms, whose output is variable. And so those are two really, really important factors. The disadvantage, of course, is its cost, which is roughly three times that of building and operating a gas plant, and five times that of a utility-scale solar farm. And then also the perceived risks, what to do with nuclear waste, those are really big political questions. And so I think part of the reason why nuclear is interesting is the scale at which clean energy needs to be deployed if America has any chance of meeting President Biden's goals is so vast. And nuclear is something that actually could play a role, but it has historically been plagued by by challenges that are both um, challenges of cost and challenges of politics. And frankly, there are so many other technologies that have their own sets of shortcomings, and you can have really long debates about the relative merits of different types of energy output, but nuclear provides a little window in just how fierce some of those arguments can be. We'll talk more about those perceived risks when we go back to America's worst nuclear accident in a moment. First, though, if you're looking for an outstanding Christmas present for someone, or indeed for yourself, why not buy an Economist subscription? You'll also get access to all of our journalism, including this week's Christmas issue, which has lots of essays in addition to all the usual coverage that we have. My two favourites in the Christmas issue are the essays on Russia and Ukraine, and also the one on the founders of the biggest crypto exchanges. Both of those particularly interesting, but there are lots of other good essays in there too. Checks and balance listeners can get the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. Members of the General Assembly, when Secretary General Hammarskjöld's invitation... In a 1953 speech to the United Nations, President Eisenhower set out how nuclear power could be used differently in the post-war world. This fission material would be allocated to serve the peaceful pursuits of mankind. Experts would be mobilized 
to apply atomic energy to the needs of agriculture, medicine, and other peaceful activities. A special purpose would be to provide abundant electrical energy in the power-starved areas of the world. Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace speech asked the world to rethink nuclear, to repurpose it as a force for good rather than destruction. Thus, the contributing powers would be dedicating some of their strength to serve the needs rather than the fears of mankind. The United States would be more than willing. It would be proud to take up with others principally involved the development of plans whereby such peaceful use of atomic energy would be expedited. President Eisenhower failed to halt the nuclear arms race, but the speech did spark the creation of peaceful nuclear programs across the world. The first large-scale nuclear plant in America began supplying electricity to the Pittsburgh area in 1958. In 1973, amid a global oil crisis, 41 plants were ordered. There was some opposition to nuclear power from activists, but it had become part of the fabric of the nation's energy production. Then, in late March 1979, Walter Cronkite, who'd broken the news of JFK's assassination, had another grim announcement. It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare. As far as we know, at this hour, no worse than that. But a government official said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date. Three Mile Island sits in the Susquehanna River, just south of Harrisburg. It had hosted a nuclear generating station since 1974, with its second reactor coming online in late 1978, just three months earlier. It happened at the number two generator about four o'clock this morning. Something caused the secondary cooling system to fail. It shut off the reactor, but heat and pressure built up and some radioactive steam escaped into the building housing the reactor and eventually out into the plant and the air. In the end, the radiation leak was negligible. No one died at Three Mile Island and there were no long-term health effects for anyone working at the plant or living in the surrounding area. But in the days of miscommunication and uncertainty that followed, something shifted in the American psyche. Sometime around the early 50s when we suddenly realized that in nuclear energy one really had what might be uh, an inexhaustible energy source. And that realization hit us uh, like a, a tremendous thing that all of a sudden you, you have confronting you the possibility of inexhaustible energy and that man's whole future would depend upon somehow an, an inexhaustible energy source. Dr. Alvin Weinberg had been a leading figure in Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace program. In a documentary made a month after the accident on Three Mile Island, he seems chastened. I personally, and, and many of the people in the uh, nuclear energy enterprise, have had this idea that what we were doing was uh, something that everybody should be immensely pleased with that, that man's salvation almost depended upon our development of this inexhaustible energy source. And then here it is 25 years later and we turn out to be a, a bunch of heavies. There had been signs America was already calling its love affair with nuclear. There was the high cost, the question of where to store nuclear waste and the growing protest movement. But Three Mile Island was a turning point 39 plants were soon cancelled, and construction slowed in the following decades. 
The accident changed the nuclear industry in America for the better, too. It led to the introduction of significant new safety protocols, oversight and training. Three Mile Island, mercifully, was no Chernobyl. That it remains the worst nuclear accident to have ever happened in America is a pretty strong argument in favour of nuclear power. John, it would seem from our discussion so far that building more nuclear power plants in America is almost a no-brainer. I mean, I think the point that Charlotte makes about cost is an important one, but, but even so, the arguments are pretty strong. But there's also a lot of movement in the other direction, right? Aaron wrote a very nice piece in November about Diablo Canyon, which is a nuclear power plant in California, which provides 15% of the state's clean energy, and yet is due to close in 2025. That's right. The concern about Diablo Canyon, I think, is that it lies on a couple of fault lines. And I think people saw what happened at Fukushima and got justifiably worried. I mean, one thing that's striking to me about nuclear energy is that its costs and its drawbacks are both readily apparent in ways that the costs and drawbacks of, say, fossil fuels are not, right? The environmental costs of coal and natural gas are external. Everyone pays them. In the case of nuclear power, they're just super expensive to build. They tend to involve a lot of cost overruns. They take much longer than planned. And so I suppose that is a bit of a headache for planners. But there's also a widespread popular concern about possible accidents, about what to do with nuclear waste. And these are obvious drawbacks, but no source of energy is without its drawbacks. And I think nuclear opponents perhaps overemphasize the drawbacks and undercount the benefits. I think the lack of a carbon price is really important. So to John's point, um, that's not taken into account when you're thinking about the relative cost of different energy. But in many ways, nuclear, I think, is a brainer. What's the opposite of a no-brainer? Because the, 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 the reasons not to build nuclear are pretty obvious, actually. So right, so hugely expensive, way more expensive than solar and wind farms, as we just described. Um, politically unpopular, it's totally toxic. You know, you think about Yucca Mountain, which is a place that was proposed in Nevada to store nuclear waste. Obama halted the project in part because of Nevada politics. So Nevada's a swing state. Harry Reid, then the Senate Majority Leader, he didn't favor it. Trump did support storing at Yucca Mountain until he didn't because he also didn't want to support an unpopular project within Nevada. And a narrow majority of the public opposes more nuclear plants in the country. So, I mean, if I was a politician, you'd say, why on earth would you encourage this? And if you're an investor, why on earth would you invest in this type of energy versus another. But the truth is that when you look at it, an energy system is not dependent on one particular type of technology. You can have solar, you can have wind. You do also need something to provide that reliable power. So are we going to see mass scale construction of nuclear power? Is that a good idea? Probably not. But in a polarized political environment where you are trying to really simplify every issue, nuclear can get shoved out when actually it is an essential ingredient, both by extending the life of old nuclear power stations as the energy transition continues, as you're building up this wind and solar capacity, and investing in new types of nuclear power, like the project in Wyoming that we heard about. John, one of the interesting things politically about nuclear energy is how it splits people who consider themselves environmentalists. How does that play out within the Democratic Party? 
I think you saw it play out in 2020 with Biden taking a much more measured stand. Uh, He was in favor of renewable sources of energy, as were all the other candidates. But he also realized that nuclear power had to be part of the short term mix to get us to that future where we use more renewables, where we have battery storage, where it's more reliable. And you also need a backdrop fuel, right, for when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. This contrasted with Elizabeth Warren, who said at a CNN town hall that she would not invest in nuclear energy and would phase out all nuclear power plants. She later backtracked. Bernie Sanders opposed nuclear power and geoengineering and carbon capture and sequestration. So basically anything other than renewable energy was not on his radar. And this, to me, exemplifies the real problem with Bernie Sanders, right, whose position seems to be the world must be the way I want it to be. And if it isn't, then that's a problem. Well, we just don't have the storage and generation capacities with renewables to do what we might want to do now, which means that if you reject nuclear power, if you reject any other sort of interim solutions, you end up in a situation where you are more reliant not just on fossil fuels, but on extremely dirty fossil fuels, because you haven't accepted that you made it a bridge to get us to a place where we can rely on renewables. All right. Thanks, John. We'll be back in a moment to look at what America's energy future might look like. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Charlotte, you're our resident energy wonk, so we're leaning on you a lot in this episode. Earlier in this week, you sat down and talked with our colleague Vijay. Yes, Vijay Vaithiswaran is our global energy and climate innovation editor. And I asked him whether America can reach net zero without nuclear energy playing at least the role it does now. It's very difficult to see how that happens. Uh, Nuclear plays a significant role in the U.S. grid today, and it has... Uh, some advantages. It's a nearly carbon-free source of energy. And so if you're going to see a lot of these plants get old and and be retired over time, or for uh, political reasons, let's say, as in Germany, be retired before the end of their useful lives, then we're going to have a major shortfall that has to be filled by something else, and uh, something else that's nearly uh, zero carbon or very low carbon energy. And so uh, that's one problem. Uh, How do you fill the shortfall of what we already have as as an important source of power on the U.S. grid? There's some answers to that, but it's really hard to see how uh, renewables, which would be the most attractive solution because uh, the cost of new renewables is falling rapidly, how they scale up not only enough to compensate for any decline in nuclear, but also to meet the dramatic needs that we're going to have for electrification of the transport fleet through all the EVs that we're buying, electric vehicles. Uh, One of the key mantras in the decarbonization game is electrify everything that you can and then make the grid low carbon through renewables. Well, that's an awful lot. We're talking trillions of dollars of expansion in renewables. Even if the, the money can be found, which it surely can, there are enormous bottlenecks along the way in terms of the input minerals, materials, uh, and the supply chain. And of course, 
we have the problem, and this is the, the real Achilles heel of renewables, many renewable sources are intermittent. The wind blows when it blows, the, the sun shines when it shines. And uh, we need to have uh, systems to ensure that you have enough what's called firm power on the grid, enough baseload power to keep the lights on when we don't have adequate renewables, as has happened recently in Brazil, in Europe, creating terrible uh, energy crunches. So tell me, what are the alternatives? You said that there there are alternatives. Is that because they're not available now, but they might be in future? What are the things that would complement those renewables if not nuclear? The most immediate answer is natural gas. Um, in some parts of the world, natural gas is seen as a complement to renewables. Um, if you do it right, that is, if you have uh, good technology, current state-of-the-art technology for ensuring your natural gas doesn't leak uh, from pipelines or from compressors and other equipment, um, going head-to-head against a, an established coal plant without carbon capture technology, uh, a natural gas combined cycle plant, the kind that's pretty typical around the world, produces maybe half the greenhouse gas emissions of that coal plant. And that's good. So natural gas done well, and I use, I use my words carefully, it has to be done well capturing fugitive emissions and the powerful gas methane, which is the main component in natural gas. That's a huge greenhouse gas problem, but it can be done with regulation and with industry involvement. That's uh, one solution that is on the table. So in your view, what does an idealized energy future look like? Are, you sound um, cautiously pro-gas as a, as a complement to renewable energy. Do you think that it would be more prudent to build out gas plants to balance that intermittent power in the medium, short-term, medium-term than nuclear? Or what would be your path toward decarbonizing America? Of course, there's a risk, right, when you build new natural gas plants that you're locking in infrastructure that is cleaner than coal, but not clean. I think it would be a mistake for policymakers to um, uh, tip the scales in favor of one uh, technology over another, I think they should first think about the principles they're going after. One, you know, the scale of the climate challenge is enormous. Uh, and to get to anything approaching uh, net zero or the commitments made in the, under the Paris Accord uh, to dramatically decarbonize, uh, in this case, the power sector we're talking about, never mind the rest of the economy, you probably need multiple technologies to advance, multiple approaches, uh, not only to generation, which is what we're talking about with nuclear versus gas, but also to uh, upgrading the grid. There is no single bullet in energy. And I know you know this uh, as well as I do. Uh, and so I don't think any government policy favoring one versus another makes sense. But on the principle of what technologies can meet the low carbon test, how can we be pragmatic about it? Uh, rather than being reflexively anti-nuclear, which is tended to be the case in, in many parts of the world, uh, let nuclear compete, but let government play an active role in encouraging that competition. Charlotte, so Vijay thinks that nuclear has a role to play here. But as we've discussed already, the golden age of building nuclear power plants was before Three Mile Island. And that means that most of them in America are entering advanced middle age now. Many of the defenders of nuclear power think that it's possible to extend the lifetime of those plants beyond the dates they were originally due to be decommissioned. Is that, is that true? And is it incredibly expensive to do so? Well, just to take as a point of reference, there was a group out of Princeton University that modeled different ways to reach net zero in America by 2050. They took as premise for most of their scenarios, though not all, that nuclear plant life could be extended to about 80 years. 
And so I think that that helps give a frame of reference here. You, you know, you really can have nuclear as part of the equation. Um, if you don't have nuclear power, if plants are retired at 60 years and you don't build any new stuff in their scenario, you'd have to build an enormous amount more onshore wind and solar. So with nuclear, the amount of onshore wind and solar to reach net zero would span about 600,000 square kilometers, which is slightly smaller than two New Mexicos put together, but is bigger than Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois combined. So that's with nuclear. Without nuclear, that land coverage needs to go even higher. So you know, I think it's just worth keeping the scale of this transition in mind that you can't eliminate one technology um, and have a credible chance of meeting some of the targets. But I think that Vijay is absolutely right in talking about this, not as favoring one particular technology over another, but thinking about the long-term goal and then letting different technologies compete. Charlotte, do other countries share America's anxiety about nuclear power? It varies enormously. So Germany, of course, after the Fukushima disaster, decided to phase out nuclear power. Um, Chernobyl inspired, the disaster at Chernobyl inspired Italy to abandon nuclear power. Um, In each of those instances, I think you see both squeamishness about nuclear power as well as some of the problems that arise when you do without it. So Italy imports a lot of its electricity from France, which is generated by nuclear power stations. Um, Germany, in the absence of nuclear power, um, has become more dependent in the very short term on coal and then a lot more dependent on gas, which makes uh, a political challenge in its dealings with Russia. So, you know, there, there are costs, both political costs and environmental costs to moving away from nuclear. But I'll say that there are two countries that have really made nuclear power priority, and that's China and Russia. They've been investing very heavily in nuclear technologies. Um, And so I think part of the reason why the Biden administration and frankly, some Republicans are very interested in investing in nuclear innovation is both for environmental reasons, um, but also to keep up with the investments that Russia and China are making. So you see America not wanting to be left behind as some of its biggest rivals invest in new types of energy. Fazman, what do you think the chances are of nuclear technology getting a nudge in the right direction from from Congress? I mean, as we talk, the Build Back Better legislation seems to have been delayed until January. It may not even be passed then. If it is passed, it'll be very much a slimmed down version of the original draft. I mean, is this something that the market is going to have to sort out for itself, um, which is problematic given, as Charlotte says, we don't have a carbon price? I think it probably is something the market will have to sort out for itself in the near term. I expect that the fight over Build Back Better will extend into next year, maybe well into next year. And after that, Democrats are going to be looking down the barrel of a losing election in November. I would think they'd want to put what political capital they still have into uh, voting rights legislation, perhaps uh, amending the Electoral Count Act. So I would expect that this doesn't even make it onto Congress's radar next year. I think that's really true. I mean, if you look at Democrats' electoral chances going forward, right now, Democrats have control of the House, they have control of the presidency, and they have 50 seats in the Senate. And that's probably the best they're going to do for a long time. And even in this environment, real aggressive climate legislation seems like a non-starter. 
And so the question is, what are we left with? And John Fasman talked about Bernie Sanders' kind of purism on some of this stuff. Usually you don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. With climate action in America, the bar has been lowered even further. And so in the absence of real action from Washington, what do you do? How do you try to continue to pursue the goal of reducing emissions within the country and therefore hopefully trying to become a credible partner in lowering emissions globally. And I think in that context, there is support among Republicans for investing in innovation. There is support on the state level for lowering emissions and trying to pursue different energy targets. And I think nuclear is interesting in that context because it's a technology that exists. It's a technology for which there is appetite to invest in innovation. You know, you see that with this plant in in Wyoming. But the ideal version of America's clean energy revolution does not seem to be materializing. And so in that context, I think you do have to think pretty seriously about some of the other options. And one of those is nuclear. I think don't let the thoroughly mediocre be the enemy of the not completely disastrous is a good maxim for thinking about Congress next year. (laughs) Okay, thank you both for that. Before I let you go, I have a quiz. And Charlotte, I'm feeling good about this one for you. I, I would note that we had an email from a reader recently about a quiz which ended with a hashtag, Go Charlotte. And and I think a nuclear quiz might be just the thing to perk up your score at the end of the year. I don't know. I doubt it. Let's see. The Economist wrote about the potential to derive household energy from nuclear reactors in March 1950. The consumer would notice little difference beyond the absence of coal or smoke, we reckoned. Question one. The country that gets the highest proportion of its energy from nuclear power is France. But what percentage of its electricity comes from nuclear? I would say something like 70%. I was going to be far gloomier and say 30 Charlotte, you are absolutely on the money. It is apparently 70.6%. So, you know... That's amazing. You you got it. After the oil crisis in the 1970s, the French increased their reliance on nuclear. The slogan at the time was, in France, we don't have oil, but we have ideas. Question two. France, along with America, is one of eight declared nuclear powers, countries that have nuclear weapons in the world. Can you name the other six? Oh, man. Ooh. Britain, China, Russia, India, Pakistan, and Israel? Did Israel end its ambiguity policy? Charlotte, do you want to get in there? That? that was fast work. Yeah, that from was. John. How many did you list? I listed five that I feel pretty good about, and then the last one that I don't feel great about. I don't know who the others are. Who are they, John? Enlighten us. The one we missed was North Korea, which is oh, unambiguously, right. unashamedly uh, a nuclear power. Israel is believed to have nuclear weapons too, but has never formally declared that it has them. Okay. But I think you did pretty well on that. I think honours even in that quiz. Though I think maybe Charlotte just shades it for getting the share of electricity generated from nuclear energy in France pretty much spot on. I'm hoping that answer can sustain me over the next dozen quizzes. (laughs) Well, Charlotte, John, thank you both very much, as ever. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions to test John Fasman's trivia knowledge. We'll put them to him on a Christmas special edition next week. Thanks also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicola Rulfast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. 
In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.